Hi, and welcome to Crypto Facto with Josh and Jonathan. I'm Josh Clayman. And I'm Jonathan Ching, and we're from the global law firm of Linklaters. On this podcast, you'll hear our hot takes on some of the hottest topics affecting the digital assets and tech spaces. Of course, these are our personal views only, and nothing we say here today is legal advice, investment advice, or any other kind of advice. But we do think it's interesting. So hold on tight and let's get to it. Hi, everyone. We're back. So today, gosh, there's so much for us to cover, and it seems like more is coming out by the hour. We're not going to be able to cover everything, but some of the high points that we're planning to talk about include the New York Times article about Bitcoin mining, the FTX report that just came out a few days ago, BZX Dow case in California, um, the upcoming Shanghai Capella, also known as Chappella upgrade, and just today, um, not that we comment on pricing from an investment perspective, but Bitcoin hit 30000 today for the first time since June 2022. So it's a big day. I think before we go into those topics, the one thing we, we probably should point out just relates to Bexi or Bexi. I've heard it pronounced both ways. And the enforcement action that came out exactly one day after we filmed our last podcast. So as you may recall, we made a prediction that the SEC was likely to want to break up the functions that different trading platforms are providing. And sure enough, on March 29th, um, the SEC brought an enforcement action against uh, Bixi or Bexi platform. And among other things, said that there were violations of the Exchange Act because um, of various functions. And that Bexi not only should have registered as an exchange, but they should have registered also as a clearing agency and as a broker. And so I think, you know, some are saying that this is um, this is going to be a drumbeat or a preview for what we're going to see with other trading platforms. And I guess we'll just have to wait and see. But with that, Jonathan, I think the the thing everyone's been talking about on Twitter, what is it with this New York Times article about Bitcoin mining? Well, um, I guess there's a few different things. So the, the New York Times published a really interesting long form piece about Bitcoin miners in the United States, and it identified you know, 33, I believe, different locations, uh, the largest of which are in Texas, uh, where Bitcoin mining is, at least according to their research and their findings, uh, Bitcoin mining is leading to increases in the cost of energy and potentially could lead to outages. Um, this is, of course, a really hot issue in Texas, no pun intended, because of the, you know, the, the swings. If it gets really hot in the summertime, if it gets really cold in the wintertime, Texas has its own grid. It's called ERCOT, and it's different from the way most of the United States operates its power grid. Uh, the ERCOT folks have actually just granted a license to expand more you know, Bitcoin mining locations in the state of Texas. And Governor Greg Abbott is very supportive vocally, you know, in, you know, in terms of what this offers Texas in terms of jobs and technology, promoting things like that. Uh, the Times article takes the position that actually it's increasing pollution. It is increasing costs to retail and residential consumers. And it is basically a drain on a system that's already basically maxed out. Um there was, uh, you know, a, a swift, I would say, a rebuttal 
published by Riot Platforms. The Riot Platforms is by far the largest producer in Texas that has a 450 megawatt plant. Um, and they're saying that effectively the Times article distorts the reality. Um, you know, that the Bitcoin miners are just simply plugging into the grid like everyone else. They have obtained all the right licenses. They are, you know, basically, uh, you know, just like any other business. The, the analogy is made to a call center, you know. Um, so it, I think, highlights a very, you know, tense political situation around whether or not states should encourage Bitcoin mining and whether Bitcoin miners in the United States should be tapping into that same grid. So because, again, they think that this might lead to increased cost to consumers and potentially cause outages if there's extreme shocks. Um, you know, Houston experienced winter storm, winter storm Uri in 2020, uh, the port of Houston, and, and there was an ice storm basically shutting down the grid all across the state. And so it's, it's a fragile and, and very politically charged situation. I don't know, Josh, did you uh, have other thoughts on this one? Yeah, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts. I mean, I know my understanding is that Texas has been trying to become a real crypto hub, right? There's that bill that was recently introduced by one of the representatives from Texas. Um, I'm not going to pronounce his name right, I'm sure, but um, Capriglione, I think it may be, um, that was designed for um, addressing proof of reserves, you know, to to basically protect Texas consumers' investments in digital assets. And you know, a lot of statements have been made about how Texas would like to come, um, you know, to the fore in terms of crypto. And so this article, I mean, it was really, to say it was scathing, I mean, that's, that's soft, right? And I think that the, the response by Riot, it was equally powerful. I mean, reading through that, it really put into perspective and at least called into question many of the things and many of the presentations that were made in that article. Um, I also just, uh, I'll give a few examples, but one thing I also noticed when reading through that piece um, in the New York Times is the specific shout out about halfway through to Ethereum. So, you know, after talking about, you know, the, the dangers and all sorts of other challenges being caused by these Bitcoin miners and the fundamental unfairness of, of, of their access to energy and things like that. Um, there is a little paragraph in there that says there are ways to operate a cryptocurrency using far less electricity. Last year, Ethereum, the second most popular cryptocurrency, reduced the electricity needed to power the network by more than 99% by switching its algorithm. Now it rewards people and trusts them to update the ledger because they're willing to put up their own money as collateral, not because they have spent money to power guessing computers as Bitcoin does. Burn. I mean, to me, when I read that, that sounded very political and very um, partisan, not necessarily in a political way, but just in a crypto political way. Um, so, you know, it's really interesting, this attack on Bitcoin and call, you know, referring to it as power guessing computers, right? When Bitcoin is the digital asset that the SEC and the CFTC are both confident is a commodity and not a security. Right. And um, and where the idea, I mean, some people who are in favor of of proof of work over proof of stake, and certainly it seems like the trend is towards proof of stake. But some people say, look, if you have Bitcoin mining, you can buy a Bitcoin mining rig. You can mine your own. You can do your own work. Whereas 
Um, some say, you know, proof of stake can lead to oligopolies and, and situations where actually there's a lot less decentralization. But one of the things, I mean, some, some of the distortions as Riot called in its response um, were really shocking. I mean, the article talked about, you know, greenhouse gas emissions and all kinds of pollutants and, and Riot was like, but we use the grid, you know, and the grid in Texas, you know, it uses solar, it uses wind, um, it uses nuclear. Yeah, there's a statistic. So the Bitcoin, uh, sorry, the New York Times article says that Riot operates on 96% fossil fuel using a marginal emissions calculation. And Riot says, nope, we use the Texas energy grid, which uses approximately 24% wind, 10% nuclear, and 4% solar. They also say, like, no one's paying us um, to shut off our, our power when we're not shutting off our power, which is, if you read the New York Times article, it seemed like they were saying that. And I think maybe one of the things that struck me the most, and then I'll, I'll, um, I'll pause on this, is just that the article talked about you know, this idea that Bitcoin miners, they only employ a handful of folks and it's more centralized operation. And Riot mentioned, you know, we're the biggest employer in the county. We pay the highest, I think they said they paid the highest school taxes or something like that. And um, that they employ like 300 people or something. So I guess it's, it's all very interesting. Um, and, you know, they're saying, Jonathan, I guess they're saying both things both ways about this supposed operation choke point and whether it exists or not. Um, but it certainly seems like something is happening. Well, there, there really is no doubt to my mind that obviously the, the narrative in the popular media and probably in Capitol Hill is really shifted against crypto from where it was in, you know, a, a year or two ago for obvious reasons. Um, but again, I, I, you know, the, the, the timing of the article and then the thrust of it seems very much designed to convince the reader that there really is no value to this whole initiative. And, you know, I, it, it, it's a funny piece of journalism in the sense that it talks about how these towns where these crypto mines are located in West Texas and Central Texas, they used to be fairly wealthy. They were little fun communities. And you know, the, the, what, for whatever reason, you know, their local industries left and they've been replaced by crypto mining. But it seems like the implication is that the crypto mining is not doing enough for the community uh, in the way that the old, you know, industry did. Um, you know, the, so in one example that they cite in the article, they talk about there was an aluminum smelter. And I guess yeah. that, for whatever reason, is not economic anymore. Uh, those are, to my mind, two very different ideas. <laughs> You know, the fact that America lost its industrial base in the late 70s and early 80s due to NAFTA, you know, and then in the 90s with the NAFTA changes, you know, that that's a different problem than Bitcoin mining and electrical use and, you know, renewable power. And I, I don't know, there's a lot of different ideas that get baked together in here. And so when I read this yesterday, it was very surprising to me because it seemed to have a very obvious political motive in a way that I don't think responsible journalism usually does. To bring that back to what we were talking about, um, you know, Operation Choke Point, I mean, there's definitely, if you look at the regulatory agencies, if you look at the mainstream media, if you look at what's going on with, you know, sort of the politics in general, um, you know, I, I saw a lot of commentary last week saying, you know, has the, has the U.S. effectively shadow banned crypto? 
or are we in the process of basically moving everything out? And is that really coming from the top? Has the Biden administration taken a view that this is just something that shouldn't exist in America? Um, I would have said a year ago, that's crazy, but now it seems like that's more plausible. I agree. I totally agree. I'm just, I'm so puzzled by this point in the New York Times, though, about Ethereum. You know, because, I mean, just actually stepping back for one second, you know, another thing that Riot had talked about was, and this goes to your point about, like, the question of replacing one industry or one use with another. They asked the question, or they posed the statement, why is why is energy use for Bitcoin mining rigs bad, but say electric cars good? You know, so it's it's um there are a lot of of really really interesting questions, and I do wonder. You know, at the beginning of the podcast mentioned about you know the the Bitcoin price right, which since this whole banking debacle. Uh, really has shot up, right? Almost as though Bitcoin is being viewed for the purpose that it was invented, right? Um, it was invented of the in the shadow of the financial crisis, right? When people weren't trusting banks and intermediaries, and it's interesting that it's it's performing well now um, relative to how it was doing, say in November or other points last year. I do note also that well, one I, of the- I, I, I would though, Josh, just on that, um, the one thing I think is probably more interesting than the overall price is, is the trading volume. It does seem like there is not a lot of trading activity for that price movement, at least based on what I was reading this morning before we got on the air. So I actually think there's not a lot of activity in the market, in any market, in any financial market generally right now because of what happened in March. Um, or maybe in part, uh, you know, after what happened in March, probably not because of, but, you know, I think we, we haven't seen, and I, again, I, I'd always, I think, you know, this, I told you this, you know, like when we're in Miami in 2022 at Bitcoin, that the conference and you just see the enthusiasm, I wonder if that enthusiasm is back or not. I mean, I, I do believe that there are some that are very excited about what's happening in the banking system just because it's sort of, um, to their mind, almost proof of concept is the wrong word, but, um, you know, it, it's sort of playing out some of the, some of the warnings that I would say uh, crypto maxis, I won't even say Bitcoin maxis, but crypto maxis have, have been saying about the financial system and, and risks of fractional reserve banking. I do think, though, yeah, going I mean, back. Well, I mean, wasn't the, <laughs> the, the the genesis block of Bitcoin, didn't it contain that, uh, the, the quote about bailouts? <laughs> this is where yep. we all started. Exactly. Exactly. And so one thing, just going back to that article for a second and that point about Ethereum. If you look at what's going on and with the statements by Gensler, uh, Chairman Gensler of the SEC and others, um, just about, you know, is ETH, could that be deemed to be a security at this point, right? And also knowing that there's the upcoming Shanghai Capella, aka Chappella upgrade um, that would enable the withdrawal of staked ETH from the Ethereum blockchain, um, thereby completing the, the full transition from proof of work to proof of stake. I mean, 
it's just interesting the timing right because that's also been in the news that that is expected to happen soon and there have been predictions i wouldn't maybe not predictions but there have been concerns expressed about what is going to happen to the price of ethereum once people are able to withdraw the eth that they staked in connection with the ethereum merge um, and some are predicting you know a, a lower price so I, again, this is not investment advice in the least, just trying to, to map the trends and trying to figure out the motivations uh, behind the, the writers of the article. Well, I, I would think generically, just as, a, as an observation, right? You know, if there is any kind of asset and that asset is suddenly available to sell, you're gonna have sellers, right? And that's gonna push prices down. So I wouldn't take that to mean that there's any kind of, you know, change in the faith of Ethereum or the, the the mission or whatever it is, if, you know, once it gets released, there's this massive selling into the market because there are people who need money probably. Oh, totally. Totally. I, I think that that's to be expected, especially after everything else that has happened over the past few months. I think it, it will be um, interesting to see just how much, you know, just how much movement yeah. there is. Um, and I do think, you know, playing in the, if we kind of replay the paraphrase, not, not quote by Gensler, when he talks about, you know, sometimes staking could look like lending, right? And does it look like people were paid interest perhaps to refrain from selling? Um, that's a different way of looking at things than, okay, people are participating in the validation of a network, right? And so it'll be yeah. just interesting see what in fact um, happens and maybe what in fact motivations may have been. Of course, at this point, yeah, I mean, it, you could, well, I mean, wouldn't you also say too that, you know, you'd be concerned if you were a holder, a large holder of ETH due to the regulatory risk right now that you just highlighted. And, you know, maybe it's, it makes sense to flip some of that out and, you know, buy the Bitcoin or something else, which seems to be seems to have maintained its status, at least in, in the SEC's eyes, as, as not a security. A hundred percent. I think that's absolutely right. And I think I think that to look at whatever the outcome is with ETH and, and what happens once the Chappella upgrades are in place um, or achieved, I don't think, even though I was playing with that idea a moment before, I don't actually think you can look back and tack on what somebody's initial motivation was because so much has happened in the interim. Yeah, no, absolutely. But you, you're, you're right. And I mean, I have to think, unfortunately, for people involved in the, in the banking, you know, that that was a bullish indicator for, for Bitcoin, if you believe the fundamental premise about why Bitcoin exists and why it is a store of value, right? Absolutely. So I guess, shall we move on to a different, a different topic? Absolutely. Okay, so one of the things that's been on the internet a lot as well is this release from April 6th, where Treasury released its 2023 DeFi Illicit Finance Risk Assessment. While this has generated a lot of buzz um, because you know the Treasury is calling out DeFi um, and basically warning about the risk of, of terrorists and, and sanctioned parties um, and sanctioned countries, 
um, using DeFi, right? And saying, look, there should be a risk assessment that's critical and there should be KYC, AML and sanctions checks done. I've got to say, like, I know it's caused a lot of conversation, but to me, it it doesn't seem surprising. It seems like another thing, like, yeah, like who didn't, who didn't know that we should be concerned about this? And I, I'm just, I think I'm just getting continually surprised when our industry appears to be surprised when regulators say certain things. And I totally get the idea of, you know, of freedom of speech and the ability to write code. But, you know, terrorists are out there, bad actors are out there, and checks exist. Um, I understand the hesitation to enforce against um, or, or to have developers be held responsible. There does seem to be a kind of visceral resistance in the industry to that. But I mean, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, right? I just think as innovative as the technology and the people in our industry are, you know, the people can design these amazing systems and, and decentralize this and decentralize that and create new, um, new ways of, of operating and transacting. Surely people can find ways to program into DeFi some sort of check. Now, it's not going to be as automatic, I presume. It would require stopping the action of the smart contract. You know, there would be a step within the if-then logic such that some sort of check would be done. Um, perhaps, you know, perhaps it would not require the action of a human being, but could just be some sort of verification. But there must be some way to build in the kind of innovation that would comply with the spirit of the law. And I, I just, I kind of don't buy it that this would defeat DeFi or that that having those kind of checks would be a death knell for, for DeFi. I, I feel like it's more that people are, are happy with the way things are now and they're not so concerned. It's not on, their, on the forefront of their mind about, you know, what is North Korea doing? From moment to moment, and and maybe it should be. What are what do you think? So I, I you know I think this is goes back to this debate that has been around as long as there's been crypto and policy, which is you know there's this incentive to not comply. You know compliance is not necessarily viewed as a good thing in certain yeah. quarters. And I think we've seen this and this got played out. You know, the great example was the things that happened to the stable coins in connection with the bank runs last month, right? Yeah. If you look at what happened to Circle versus what happened to Tether, um, you know, there's a real probably one of the takeaways from that is actually complying to the highest standards of the law might be bad in a crisis situation, depending on how you look at, you know, what, what your goal is. So if I were the DeFi protocol developer and I was looking at potentially, you know, well, again, I would have nothing to do with the United States to the extent I could, um, because it just seems like that's the way our policy is headed. Yeah. But do I want to rework my code? I mean, their their goal seems to be I want the cleanest, most efficient thing that has the fewest checks. And what the law does is it imposes checks. 
So I think there's a real fundamental disconnect between those two things and those objectives. And you're right. It's every each side thinks the other side is should be aware of things, right? So from the policymakers' perspective, it says, well, we should always obviously be aware about sanctions, AML, and KYC. And on the DeFi side, they say, but you should obviously be aware that all I'm doing is putting up some code and then I'm disappearing and money's going to move automatically. And those things are not compatible in my mind. Totally. No, I, I totally hear your point. I just think it's not a cute look for our industry to be like, what? What? Like shocked. Shocked for her. <laughs> <laughs> like, issue something, warning about the dangers of DeFi with respect to you know, terrorism and, and things like that. Like, what, I don't know, at, at a certain point, feigning shock that regulators think that, that laws should apply is um, either people are feigning shock or they're actually shocked. And if they're actually shocked at this point, after having had like guidance from FinCEN and CFTC and SEC in 2019 saying coming or going, basically you need to do these checks. Um, whether it's a security, a commodity, or a substitute for money. And after we've seen Treasury say that like NFTs are likely subject to the same kind of oversight as the traditional art market, like how did people think that that DeFi would be outside of that? Now I do think, I know I sound like I'm not a DeFi fan. Um, I do think DeFi has so many interesting possibilities and and there is a lot of promise in it. And I think it is something where like, okay, from the SEC's perspective, if I'm putting myself in their shoes for a moment, I think they know how they want to treat centralized trading platforms, right? That's something that I believe in their mind they have relatively solved. Whereas I, I do think that DeFi is a place where we can continue to educate regulators and maybe find some innovative solutions that could, um, could address regulators' concerns I think DeFi is something really new, and and um, so I'm not trying to sound too negative about it, but maybe pivoting, if it's okay from you, from DeFi to DAOs for a moment. So if you like DAOs are another thing where people um, seem to be trying to find ways to, I hate to say it this way, but to avoid being held liable, right? To avoid being um, the responsible party and where the law just keeps trying to find ways to get hooks into them. Um, and so with that, that turns us, I think, to BZX DAO, which for those not familiar with it, um, it was, it's a case in the Southern District of California in federal court. And they found, and actually stepping back for a second, BZX DAO, I believe is the predecessor to Uki DAO. Um, and UkiDAO, we talked about previously, I believe, um, where the CFTC had had enforced against the holders of the governance tokens that actually exercise governance. And this BZX DAO case is different, but it's still about finding ways to hold someone responsible. Um, Jonathan, do you want me to go into it a little bit, or do you want to? Yeah, no, tell me all about it, because I have thoughts on DAOs, but I don't know the specific specifics of this case. Okay, so this case, um, and I actually have to credit Andrea Tiniano for bringing it to my attention and literally printing out the, the case for me um, recently. So basically this court found that 
under a California statute um, that a general partnership had been formed with this BZXDAO and that actually there was a duty owed uh, to the plaintiffs and the duty was breached. So it's an actual negligence claim that survived. Um, they found that the defendants, um, which included uh, basically the BZXDAO, the, the members of the BZXDAO, um, that they owed a duty of care to the plaintiffs because the plaintiffs um, were, as the court said, intended beneficiaries of the transaction because they were the BZX protocol's users. And they said that it was foreseeable that a lack of security on the BZX protocol would cause harm to individuals. At, and basically BZX had been targeted by three previous hacks with initial losses of approximately 9 million. So it was foreseeable. And they said the Dow's conduct is morally reprehensible in lack of their safety, in, in lack of, yeah. Um, and so I just thought this was really interesting, this discussion of general partnership formation, partnership liability. And so unlike Uki Dow, where they were talking about the holders who actually exercised governance, right? Some of the criticism of that was that, for example, you could be a large investor and just hold tokens and you wouldn't be liable, but you could be a person exercising governance and you could be saying, let's get a lawyer or let's not do this, right? And yet you could be liable. Whereas here, you know, some of the, um, the general partners were pretty deep pockets. They included VCs. Um, and while there were still questions as to um, specific uh, personal jurisdiction over some of the defendants, which the plaintiffs were able to, they would have the opportunity to readdress in the future um, with leave to amend. It, it was really fascinating to see this, you know, just general negligence theory be able to survive. And so I think, interestingly, if we think over about Europe and what's going over uh, across the, the ocean um, with the Tulips case involving, for example, Craig Wright, right, that involves fiduciary duty. And so it, it's just interesting to see that just as the technology and as these various parties try to find ways to not be held liable under the law and to be truly decentralized, whatever that may mean, um, the law keeps finding ways to hold them liable. So I think that's an interesting parallel to, um, to this question about DeFi and laws applicable to it. But I'd love to hear your thoughts or your initial reactions about it or anything else. Well, I mean, you know, I remember having conversations about DAOs when I first heard the term with some of the people who were proposing these ideas. And it seemed to me that you were kind of stuck if you wanted, at least in a, in a U.S. context, right? because somebody ultimately has to be responsible. And, and this, you know, goes back to things, conversations, you know, the, that I may have shared with you that I had with FINRA and the SEC back, you know, as early as 2015, 2014, where they go, okay, it's nice that you have this crypto thing, this platform, trading vehicle, whatever it is, who's responsible? Who runs the books and records? Because the <laughs> whole premise of the 33 Act, the 34 Act, you know, the 40 Act, all the different US regulations is that there are human beings who can be inspected and audited 
by, you know, by the, by the regulators and someone has to sit there and be responsible for these things. And so there really is just no way for anyone to understand on the regulator side, you know, legally, if there is not a human being at home who they can show up and say, okay, explain to me how this works. A lot of the system of regulation breaks down. And so they will try as hard as they can and use every device available to them to make somebody responsible because that is fundamentally the point, right? You need to have a human being answering the door at some office somewhere in order to explain what's going on to people because that, you know, that's the thing people don't see if you're not in the industry. If you, you know, having worked in with securities and derivatives for all of my career, you know, that's, that's the way that the regulations actually get done. You know, it's not so much what the printed rule says. It's the fact that people can have a conversation and explain how they are complying. People can identify deficiencies and then, you know, changes can be made in order to further comply. That's, you know, very different, I think, than what people envisioned for the DAO, uh, for a DAO. And I think that that's where the, the you know, people are falling off the cliff, right? Yeah. I mean, and I have to wonder, I mean, granted, some people have been decentralization purists and true believers for a very, very long time, you know, hence Bitcoin, right? And, and many other, other innovations since then, and probably before then. But I do have to wonder, you know, whether Hinman's speech in 2018, where he used the term sufficiently decentralized one time, how much that drove together with the SEC's um, April 2019 framework for investment contract analysis of digital assets, how much that drove people in the direction of trying to find more and more ways to say, it's not me, it's not me, as though that was a way, as though that were a way to escape liability. Um, it, I just wonder, yes, we'd have some DAOs, yes, we'd have some things, but would we have this many um, had decentralization not become, well, had some people have called it decentralization theater post, um, post Hinman speech and post framework. Interesting to think about. You know, I totally forgot as we oh. were going through this. That, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. one final thought on that. I mean, I, I think if you, you know, again, if you ask them to design a system for crypto, they go, well, it's just like you said earlier in the show, you know, or earlier in the podcast, there's a separate broker dealer, there's a separate <laughs> custodian, and there's a separate exchange. There are all sorts of companies that can list <laughs> their product on the exchange. And, you know, that the, the way, away you go, right? And then you're coming in from, from the other side where you're saying, well, I want this thing where there's, you know, I, w I want to rebel against that traditional system. And so what I would do is I would create a new decentralized thing, whatever that is, a box where people could input in their ideas, but no one person would control it. You know, it's very utopian, but it doesn't comport with any of the systems of regulation that we have in place right now. Yeah, I mean, I just, I don't know. I mean, yes, some people are dreaming of utopia and then I feel like some people are just dreaming of money. And I don't know that those are always the same thing. Um, just, you know, sometimes they might be, but other times maybe not so much. But um, well, I mean, I, you know, it's looking looking more and more like 
you know, a lot of the stuff was, was, you know, a scam, right? And and a lot of the things that we've seen, that's where I think the views on on in Washington are hardening. They're saying, well, actually, this was just a scam on retail, as you read in the CFTC complaint, right? And if that's really the case, then then it's a very easy story to tell people why we're cracking down so hard on it. Yeah. And speaking of scams, um, one thing that we said we'd talk about, but we haven't gotten to yet, is that FTX report released on Sunday. Um, Among other things, so far, it's been reported that it revealed that Brett Harrison, former FTX U.S. president, left the company due to a dispute with SBF, Sam Bankman-Fried, and also, to me, um, one of the most interesting and shocking statements, which I will paraphrase, um, that's been reported on about Alameda being unauditable in SBF's words, um, but but clarifying not that a major accounting firm would have reservations about auditing it, but that you know we sometimes find fifty million lying around that we forgot about, such as life. I mean, it just <laughs> very, keeps very coming. <laughs> it just <laughs> keeps coming, and I know Jonathan. I know you've read through that report um, with some depth. Are there any high points that you'd like to call out or low points <laughs> as the case may be? Well, uh, and, and again, I, you know, had tip to, to Matt Levine and called money stuff yesterday because he said it better than anyone. It was the overall theme is that FTX knew how to sound like it was a really good exchange while doing all of the things that a really good exchange would never do. And what I mean by that is, well, you know, Audible is one, you know, we are all heard about using Quicken or Quick, QuickBooks to do the, exactly. you know, uh, to do the internal, uh, to do their ask internal my accounting. Account. <laughs> uh, yeah, ask my account. I mean, they, there's, it's filled with things like that. Uh, putting private keys in you know, Amazon Web Services Secrets Manager and, you know, um, they don't have any, well, well, you know, again, to, to my lawyer's heart. There were no internal policies and procedures really for anything. And that came to light. Apparently, they were considering doing an IPO for the U.S. subsidiary. And people started saying, okay, well, what's your AML policy? What's your KYC policy? What's your internal HR policy? Debt, you know, expenses, things like basic things that people do to run a business uh-huh. weren't present there. And the fact that they got to be so big so fast just continues to, to blow my mind. <laughs> It's, it's crazy. It's crazy. And it definitely for those who may be listening to this who are in law school or studying for the bar exam. If you haven't received a bar exam or law school examination question that focuses on FTX, my guess is you'll be seeing one. (laughs) So, um, Jonathan, is there anything else you'd like to cover today? No, I think we covered a lot of ground there. That was great. Yeah, I always, you know, I'm so happy we're doing this podcast because you are are really, um, um, bar none, one of my favorite people to to be kicking around these ideas with. Absolutely, right back at you. All right, <laughs> well, well till next. Thanks everyone. And we'll leave it there, right? Sounds good. And there you have it, our hot takes for today. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jonathan Ching, and I'm Josh Clayman. Join us next time on Crypto Facto with Josh Johnson.